Welcome. We, we, uh, we've been continuing through the book of Acts. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, there's some Bibles around you and probably the seats in front of you. But we're in, we're in the book of Acts. And we're in a section in the book of Acts that is, we're being introduced to certain individuals uh, in this section. It's really interesting in the book of Acts how the individuals we meet in the book of Acts, some of them end up shaping history. Uh, last week, for example, um, we met the, the, the eunuch from the region of Ethiopia. It's interesting, uh, just this last week, actually the week before I preached it, I was walking around our new neighborhood where our church is and just kind of I talked to some of the business leaders and there's this guy named Gabriel who owns the convenience shop across the street from, from our new church. And uh, he was reading a an article about the history of Christianity and Islam in his home country, which is Eritrea, which is on the northern coast of, of Ethiopia. And I said, oh, let me see what you're reading. And I was reading it. And in the reading it, it was talking about the history of Christianity in that region. And they were tracing the history of Christianity back to the Ethiopian eunuch that we were introduced to last week in Acts chapter 8. And so it was interesting. We had this discussion about about the, the church in Eritrea and in Sudan and in Ethiopia, and it was really interesting to talk to Gabriel and hear of his perspective in there. Um, so, so sometimes we see these people in the book of Acts, and history is changed through God's grace shown toward one individual, and for better and for worse, a couple of weeks ago we were introduced to this guy named Simon, Simon Magnus, or sometimes we call him Simon the Sorcerer, and I told you that that guy's name actually comes up again and again through the early church fathers as being a person who was teaching falsehood and was uh, persuading people. And so for better or for worse, we, we see that God, uh, that, that these people we're meeting in the book of Acts can actually shape the course of history for hundreds of years and, and if not millennia. And actually today we're going to look at someone who, even today, uh, his conversion, his turning to Christ echoes through the millennia. I was uh, also cleaning out the library this week, getting ready for our move. And just as I was looking over some of the books and, uh, and kind of just, you know, looking over what was there, it, I was reminded, probably because I was thinking already of the passage that, that we're going to be looking at today, I was reminded about um, how God saves unlikely people. Like in our church library, we have a whole bunch of books um, written, for example, by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, who is a literary scholar, an atheist, and how God had providentially put people in his life, uh, including uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, and put people in his life, directing him to Christ, and how after years of resistance, he bowed his knee to Jesus Christ and, and became one of the greatest apologists. We have many of his books in our library, um, not only for adults writing books like Mere Christianity, uh, but also for children in the Chronicle of Narnia series and some of those other series. Um, I also, uh, this last was it a week ago or a couple weeks ago, a couple of us went to uh, that new movie, uh, Case for Christ. I have a case of Case for Christ books up here. I found those in the library as well. Uh, but, but Lee Strobel was a, was a journalist in Chicago, and the movie tells the story actually really well. We went with one of my, uh, my friends from the atheist group I sometimes go to, and actually my atheist friend said he actually thought it was a really good movie. So if you get a Christian movie that an atheist even likes, it's actually pretty good. So, <laughs> um, but no, Lee Strobel was a, a journalist in Chicago. His wife had come to faith, and he was uh, raging. He raged against his wife's faith. And he tells the story in A Case for Christ of how he, he used his journalistic um, skills 
to, to explore the truths of the Christian faith and, and the story in the, both the book and the movie is how God confronted him, how God met him, how God changed his heart, even in his resistance. God saves unlikely people. I mean, that's really, as we're going to get into the scripture, that's, that's the theme for today. I don't have a PowerPoint today because I really have one point. And the point is that God saves unlikely people. Um, so I found another book this week that I've read just recently. It's by a, a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. She actually entitles her book that talks about her conversion to Christ. She calls it Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. This is how she starts her book. She says, When I was 28 years old, I boldly declared myself lesbian. I was at the finish of a PhD in English literature and of cultural studies. I was a teaching associate in one of the first and strongest women's studies departments in the United States. I was being recognized and recruited by universities to take on faculty and administrative roles in advancing radical leftist ideologies. I genuinely believed that I was helping to make the world a better place. At the age of 36, I was one of the few tenured women at a large research university, a rising administrator, and a community activist. I had become one of the tenured radicals. By all standards, I had made it. That same year, Christ claimed me for himself, and the life that I had known and loved came to a humiliating end. I'm often asked to share my spiritual journey. People are interested to know what it's like to travel a long journey to Christ. I, later, she says, in the pages that follow, I share what happened in my private world through what Christians politely call conversion. This word, conversion, is simply too tame and too refined to capture the train wreck that I experienced in coming face to face with the living God. I know of only one word to describe this time-released encounter, impact. Impact is, I believe, the space between the multiple car crash and the body count. I try in the pages that follow to relive the impact of God on my life. It's not saying God impacted my life like I watched a TV show that, that, that you know, spoke to me or impacted me. She's saying God changed her life like a car crash, multi-car collision, the impact of, of, of walking away from death. That's impact. God saves unlikely people. I want you to think about, even before we look into the scripture, who would you think would be, in your life even, the most unlikely person that God would save? Maybe, I mean, it could be a family member. It could be a friend. It could be a coworker. Who in your mind would you think, this, is, this person is not by any means coming to Christ? For me, for a long time, it was my mom. I mean... That's been one of the joys of my Christian life is seeing my mom come to Christ because for about seven years when I was a young Christian, she was the most unlikely convert in my mind. You, I, I have others now. Who in your mind would you think is the most unlikely person? Perhaps in our day and age, it might be, I mean, in, in our day and age, you might not think of somebody local next to you. In our day and age, it might be somebody like... Um, Oh, somebody like a, a radical, a radical terrorist. 
Uh, imagine this. There, there's been a lot of research lately in the process of, of radicalization. There, there's been articles written about what would take a person and, and turn them into a terrorist. The FBI defines radicalization as the process by which individuals come to believe their engagement in or facilitation of non-state violence to achieve social and political change is necessary and justified. And I want to paint a portrait of one unlikely convert for you, a portrait of a radicalized religious terrorist, and this is based upon his own accounts. I'm painting this picture of an unlikely convert. Imagine this. A youth from a visibly minority, a youth from a visibly minority religious group spends his childhood in one of Europe's cultural centers. As he grows up in his childhood, his parents continuously point out to him the de depravity of the city and the culture around them. And thus the boy spends his childhood in cultural isolation. His parents dream of and pray about moving the family to the Middle East, where they can teach their children their faith and customs and a pure and unspoiled environment closer to the heart of their religion. While the boy is still a child, his parents are able to realize their dream, and they move their family out of the decadence of the city they live in to Jerusalem. While they are excited to be able to raise their family in one of the central cities of their religion, they also find that the religious tension in the city is much more intense than what they experience in their hometown. Clashes between the various religious and ethnic groups occur repeatedly, sometimes erupting in violence. And what began as feelings of isolation begin to turn darker, sometimes into hatred toward the Western imperialists and toward the infidels. The boy is an apt student, however, and the family feels the blessing of God as he accepted to sit under the teachings of one of the great teachers of their faith. They could not be more proud as the boy grows into a young man, a scholar of their faith, a respectable cleric. However, the tensions in the city grow even greater, and some of the leaders of their faith gather to discern a way forward. Some propose escalating the violence. Some propose showing their strength through escalating violence, and the young man feels his adrenaline rushing as finally their community is going to take action. However, he's shattered when his own mentor, the man who groomed him and taught him, proposes a course of moderation, which ultimately wins the day. After that day, the young man breaks with his teacher, and from that moment on begins to align himself with the more radical elements, first in Jerusalem, but ultimately finding himself leading a delegation up to Syria to join in the movement to purify his religion, in part by eradicating Christianity from the world. He's been radicalized. Now, who am I speaking of? That's right, I'm speaking of Saul, the Apostle Saul. This, this story of radicalization today, people are, are studying, and it's often about a person named Abdul or Muhammad, but you see some of the same things happening in the life of Saul, who becomes Paul the Apostle. Paul, then called Saul, his, his Hebrew name, was born in the city of Tarsus. He was born in a city in central Turkey. Uh, Tarsus at the time was one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the Greek emperor. It, it, was, the, it was actually the seat of Stoic philosophy. Uh, it was 
one of the major cultural and philosophical centers of the empire. Saul, as a Hebrew boy, would have been shielded, obviously, from the idolatry of the city around them by his parents. And when Saul was still a young kid, probably before he was 10 years old, his parents moved him to Jerusalem, him and his sister. Uh, Saul, in Jerusalem, showed an aptitude for study and was accepted to sit under the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the teachers of the day, the top Jewish teacher of the day. He was trained under the matter of the Pharisees, this conservative sect of Judaism. And, and his teacher, later in life, when the, when the uh, religious tensions about Christianity started erupting in the city of Jerusalem, it was his teacher Gamaliel who proposed a moderate solution. In Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel says, basically about the Christians, Gamaliel says, if this is from God, we can't stop it. If it's not from God, it will fade away. And after Gamaliel proposes a moderate uh, posture toward Christianity, you see Saul aligning himself more and more with the radical elements in the city. So we saw our first encounter with Saul of Tarsus was uh, through Stephen's St uh, stoning in Acts chapter 7 and 8. You get to the Acts, end of Acts chapter 7 about Stephen, and he's giving you defense of Christianity to the Sanhedrin and to the Jewish leaders, and Saul is there on that day. And it says at the end of Acts chapter 7, in verses 54, it says, When they, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they called out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul, chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of his execution. And so while Saul is there on that day, and he's approving of those who are stoning Stephen, just in a few verses later, we see that he's not just passively standing by, we see Saul now actually taking an active role in the persecution of Christians. Going on in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul, verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He entered house to house and dragged off the Christians to prison. Lest we think this is an exaggeration by Luke regarding Saul's agency in persecuting the church, here are Saul, some of Saul's own words about his life at this time. In Acts 26, he's before, one of the, the, he's before one of the kings, and he gives this testimony about himself. He says, I myself, Acts 26, verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but that when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them 
even to foreign cities. That's what Paul's doing as he's making his way up to Syria. He's raging against the church in his own words, in fury I pursued them. He says later in 1 Timothy 1.12, now reflecting on that time in his life and what Christ has done since, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed with me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. I used to think that Paul was exaggerating. Like, I used to think that Paul's this is just rhetorical flourish. It's, it's false. I used to think it was like false humility. For the Apostle Paul to say, this saying is true and trustworthy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. And I thought, well, Paul, how could you possibly be the worst of sinners? How, how, how could that be true? Isn't that an exaggeration? But if you think about it, that Paul understood that his goal of his life in his fury and his rage and his hatred toward Christians and toward their Savior, Jesus, in his fury, if Paul would have had his way, the church of Jesus Christ would have been eradicated from the beginning. That if he would have had his way, the good news of salvation as a free gift of God's grace, the good news of God's transforming grace that has rescued billions of people throughout history from lives of sin and shame, the good news that Jesus has provided a way to God, the only way to God, if the Apostle Paul had his way, the knowledge of Christ would have faded from the earth. That was his goal in his fury and his hatred toward Christians. And, and, and I don't know if he understood it, early on in his ministry, but by the time he's writing, and, and now this is, this is later, this is about 30 years into his life and ministry as a Christian, as he's writing 1 Timothy, and he reflects back and he says, I thank God for the grace that he has showed upon me, because though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor, God displayed his mercy and his love in me, and, and, and though that I was the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus saved me. Paul not only hated the gospel, he not only took out steps to act out in violence according to his hatred, but he also had the opportunity to stop the spread of Christianity today and he worked toward that end. There was not a more unlikely person for God to save. And here we are, we're just going to read Acts chapter 9. And we're going to see this conversion of this unlikely person. So if you could read with me together in Acts chapter 9. We hear the story of this unlikely saint. It says this, but Saul, chapter 9, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. Damascus being the capital city of, of the region that's now Syria. He asked them for letters to synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was out without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to, bear, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed and entered his house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you have came has sent me that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Hasn't he come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through a basket in the opening of the wall, lowering him in the basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him, for they didn't believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he'd seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Thus far God's word. There's really just one message that if I could, I mean, as I was reading this this week, it's, it's only one simple point. And the simple point is that God saves unlikely people. And that's it. That's it. As we go through this text, that, that's it. God saves unlikely people. That's why I want you to think in your life of the unlikely people, the unlikely converts in your life. There's no one, as un, there's no one more unlikely than the Apostle Paul. Jesus saves unlikely people, and he does so in, in, in spectacular ways at times. But every unlikely conversion 
There's a personal revelation of Jesus Christ. What happens here in this text is not like happened to the eunuch the week before, or, or the passage before. It's not that God sends somebody to go and to speak to the Apostle Paul. It's not that the Apostle Paul is sitting in a chariot reading the Bible and, 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 and somebody come, walks up to him and he says, hey, can you, can you help me understand the word? No, he is going to, to, to arrest and to persecute Christians and Jesus Christ stops him in his tracks reveals himself to him, shows him that he is the risen Lord, shows him that he is the God who Paul is persecuting. Jesus reveals himself. Jesus, the, the idea here is Jesus, he sees a revelation of the Lord and his, his, all the eyes that he has seen before, he is now blinded for three days. And the next time he sees again, he sees everything in his life with new eyes. And that's what happens to the Apostle Paul. That's what, that's what a true conversion does. A true conversion sees Christ. This is the song, I was blind, but now I see. That before I saw the world in this way, now I have met Christ, I have met, I know the risen Christ, and now I see all differently. Saul thought he was going up to Damascus to arrest the followers of Jesus, but, but here now it's persecuted to him. He, he's going up there to persecute the church and he hears a voice from heaven. He sees the blinding life and, and he hears the word, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's response to that is, who are you, Lord, that I'm persecuting you? I'm not persecuting you, Lord. I'm, I'm persecuting these people, these followers of the way. That's who, I'm that's, who I'm going, that's who I'm going to arrest because they're not believing in you, Lord. They're believing in this false Messiah that, that, that they're saying is you. And Jesus says to him, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And it's revealed to him that he is fighting against God. I'm trying to look around here today, and, and some of you, I don't, I don't know where you're at with the Lord Jesus, and I, and I want to share with you that if you're struggling with faith in Christ, that if you're struggling, maybe you think, maybe you think you're struggling against, I don't know if I can believe in the idea of Christ. I don't know if I can believe in the reasonableness of the resurrection, and you're struggling in that way, and you think you're struggling against an idea. Or there might be people who are struggling against you. There might be some of you who are struggling against the faith of others or Christians who treated you badly. There might be some of you who think you're fighting against the faith of your parents. And what is revealed here is that Paul is, yes, he is persecuting Christians, but what Jesus reveals to him is he's not fighting against these followers of the way. Jesus reveals to him that he's fighting against very God himself. He's fighting against Jesus himself. And it doesn't do, I'll tell you right now, it doesn't do good to fight against God because we're not strong enough to win. The only strategy when it comes to fighting against someone who is overpowering, the only strategy is surrender. And that's what Paul sees on this road to Damascus. He surrenders because he sees that God, that Jesus, is bigger than himself. It, in, not in this text, but when Paul's recounting this experience later in Acts chapter 26, he says, he, he says that God has said something else to him. And I want to look at that very quickly. In Acts chapter 26, verse 14, Paul's recounting this conversion. And he says, When they'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was, it's an agricultural farming term, it's, a goad was a long pointed stick, like sharp stick at the end. So almost like a spear, I'm guessing, but what it was, what it was used for was farmers would use it to direct their oxen. All right, so you want the ox to go a certain way, so you'd have this goad here, and, and so if the ox is turning the wrong way, you just kind of prick it a little bit, and so the ox, oh, yeah, it goes back the way it's supposed to go. Uh, we still use that phrase and the expression, we still use it today when we talk about goading someone on. You heard that one? Right, we're goading someone on. We, we're using that same expression of the goads. And what's happening here is if, if somebody's goading you on, if you're an oxen and, and the farmer's goading you on, uh, sometimes you get annoyed by that goad, don't you? And you want to push it away, you want to kick back against it. But when you kick back against it, you're basically kicking yourself back into it, and it's sharper and it's more painful. And what the Lord says to the Apostle Paul is, why are you doing this? Why are you making your life more painful for yourself by, by kicking against my grace, by kicking against the revelation that I have shown you already? See, the Apostle Paul had already heard the gospel on multiple times. The Apostle Paul had been, you, you see this in the book of Acts, he'd been following the Christian cult in his eyes. He'd been following it very closely. And so every time along the way when he's encountered by a Christian, when he, when he hears Stephen preach, and he hears Stephen preach through the entire Old Testament showing how Jesus is the Messiah of God, and when, when Stephen speaks out and says, which one, of you, which one of the prophets did you people never persecute? And Stephen is telling all the Jewish leaders they are kicking against God's goad of the, of the Old Testament. They're kicking against God's revelation in Christ. And Paul's there, and, and, and though he's, he's there giving approval to those who killed them, you've got to believe that those words that Stephen preached and those words whenever Paul went back and read from the Old Testament and saw what Stephen was saying, this is what God says the Messiah will be like, you've got to believe that every time he heard the synagogue and the Torah or the Tanakh preached, that it was goads at his side. You've got to believe that every time that Paul went house to house and dragged off the Christians and he saw these Christians giving their lives and their testimony even to imprisonment and even to death, you've got to believe that every time he, as he says, I cast my vote against them. And he saw how they welcomed persecution. They saw how they, they welcomed death. They saw how their hope in Christ did not fade. It was another goad at Paul's side. And, and Jesus here is very graceful to Paul. And he says, Paul, what are you doing? Why do you continually prick against the goats? And, and I will tell you, if you're here today, and, you're, and if you've heard the gospel time after time after time after time in your life, if you're a kid who grew up in the church, and, and you're still fighting it, you're still kicking against the goad, it will be painful for you. I first heard the gospel when I was in junior high. And I was not ready to, I, I, I could not, my, I would not respond to it. But I kicked against it for years, continually kicking against it. And God is saying here to the Apostle Paul, it's hard for you. It's not hard for Christ. Christ is not up there going, oh man, this hurts me when you've, you've not come to me. Christ is self-sufficient. Christ is sufficient in himself. But he sees the Apostle Paul and he says, you are, you are hurting yourself by kicking against the goads of my grace. 
God goads us on. Uh, uh, we who are unlikely comfort, God or converts, God goads us, and, and it hurts, and sometimes we kick against it. Sometimes you stop coming to church because the goading hurts. And you think, I'm safe because I, I didn't go to church, but then you turn on a TV. I had a friend who walked away from the Lord. He was my best friend. Um, my best man at my, what, my wedding, my best friend. And he, walked, he, he, he left Christ, he left seminary, he walked away from the Lord for a number of years. And he spoke about in that time how God goaded him. And at one time, God, one way God goaded him, that he really believes God goaded him in, in his discipline was, my friend fell off a building. He's a, a wind, he was a, one of those window washers that work on the high rises. And uh, this piece from above came down and nearly killed him. Like it fell from like stories and stories up and it was hurtling down toward him and his two coworkers who were on this platform washing the windows. And one of the guys jumped that way and one of the guys jumped that way onto other platforms. And my friend was in the middle. So he couldn't jump the way that the other two jumped. And so he, he jumped the only other direction there was, which was off of the platform altogether. It was only about three or four stories up. So he, he fell and he broke both of his, both of his feet. And he couldn't walk for a year. And he, he would sit, and, he, and he, he rebelled against God. He hated God. He was angry at God. I mean, he already walked away from faith. But God was using all those things to, to goad him. And he said one time he turned on TV. And he turned on TV, and there's one of those TV preachers. Right? And he's like, ah. Oh. And, and, he, and this really happened. He turned on TV preacher and he's like, oh, I don't want to hear this. But he was pricked again. He was goaded again. He turned on. And the, TV, the, the, the guy on TV literally was like, there's somebody watching TV right now who you cannot walk because you've broken your feet. And my friend turned off the TV because he's like, even when I was a Christian, I didn't believe in that. What? And he was freaked out by it. But it was another one of God's goads. And I don't know how God providentially used that in his life. But, but then my friend goes, and he goes to a... Um, he says, all right, after, after God's goading him for a while, and now he's about ready to walk, he's like, got a walker like that? He says, well, I'm going to, well, I guess I'll go back to church. So, but I'm going to go back to the most liberal church I can find, because I don't want to actually hear the gospel. And this is how my friend told me. He says, I didn't want to go to a church that was actually going to confront me with the gospel, but I felt like I missed that, so I was going to go back to find the most liberal church I could find. And he said, he, he walked into the church. Now, he can't walk. He got in there late, he'd, and he's walking up the aisle, and everybody's watching him, because he can only walk about that fast. And he sits down, and he says, the pastor starts preaching, and the pastor's like, starts his sermon and says, oh, I'm really sorry, i got to go get my notes. And so the pastor leaves the pulpit, goes into his office for a couple minutes, and my friend Kevin's sitting there going, what is going on here? The pastor gets back up into the pulpit, preaches for another five minutes, then says, oh, I had an illustration I wanted to show you, and i got to go. And he leaves the pulpit again. And my friend is like, this is so stupid, why am I here? So my friend in the middle of this church service now gets up to leave. But again, he can't really walk. And again, he had to sit in the front because he came late. And so now he sits up and he walks out of the service as slow as he walked in. And it was just another thing that God goaded him. And, and, and he just couldn't get away. And then you had also like a lot of his friends just fell off the radar. But you had other friends like me and another friend from seminary that continued to love him, continued to, to be patient with him, continued to goad him. And a story of God's grace of how he walked back to how he walked back, <laughs> of, of how he came back to faith. As much as he tried to run away, he couldn't escape the goats. This, is, this, this informs how I pray for my unlikely convert friends. 
It informs how I play for my brother. It informs how I pray for people who are, who are walking away. I pray that they might feel the goads. I pray that they might feel the goads that are God's grace to prod them back to him. It's a way to pray for your family and for your friends. Pray that they might feel the goads. And so the Apostle Paul has felt the goads. Jesus knows the Apostle Paul has kicked against the goads. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And Saul sees the risen Lord, and he falls on his knees, and he surrenders. Conversion is not... Uh, there are books like Case for Christ where, where it happens after a long exploration of having my questions, all my, you know, my questions about the faith answered. But at the end of the day, at the end of the book, he'll say it wasn't the questions, it was meeting the risen Lord. It was coming to the point of surrender before Christ of surrendering my will to the God who is greater than I. And that's conversion. When I see things with new eyes, I see Jesus for who he is, and I stop fighting against him. That's conversion. That's the car crash that Rosaria Butterfield explained. She said, my conversion was not, conversion's not a good enough word to describe what happened to me. What happened to me was a train wreck. What happened to me was a car crash that I had to walk away from. And if you're a Christian, this is your hope for your friends and family. If you're a Christian, your hope for your friends and family is that they will experience God, that they will experience the gospel. You can help them by goading them. You can help them by sharing the gospel with them, by sharing the scriptures with them, by sharing your life with them, by sharing your answers with them. But they need an encounter with the risen Lord. If you're here who are a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. You know when God has encountered you, when God has stopped you in his tracks, where God has not allowed you to kick against the goads anymore, when God has said, I am here, why are you fighting against me? Surrender. And if you're saying, I don't understand what that means, maybe right now I'm goading you, and I pray that you don't hear my words, but you see the risen Lord, the God of grace, the God who Paul says, I thank God for his grace because once I, once I was a hater, once I was a blasphemer, once I was a persecutor, during all that time, Paul thought he was doing his religious duty. But he said, I was a hater of God, I was a hater of man, until Jesus confronted me with who he is. And that's our hope and that's our prayer. That's why we pray for the lost. Because it will take a supernatural act of God's revelation of his grace to them, to save them. This is your hope. This is why, right now, the person in your life that you're saying that is the most unlikely convert, the person you're thinking of right now who's the most unlikely convert, God's grace is greater. If they were to see God's grace, if they were to see a revelation of Jesus Christ, they would fall down on his knees and worship him. And so that's what you pray. God, goad them. God, open up their eyes. God, reveal yourself to them. And when that happens, they cannot do anything but surrender. The effectual call of Christ upon their life is not something to confuse us as Christians. When you talk about election, and about effectual calling of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. It's not so that we can, we can be bedazzled by systematic theology books. It's to give us hope for, our Christ, for, for us as Christians that God is a powerful, grace-giving revealer of himself to those who are the most unlikely. It's our only hope. And so that's the one message of today, is to believe that God saves unlikely people. And then to us as Christians, that's the hard part. 
Is, is for us as Christians, the hard part is us believing that God saves unlikely people. It's not, the hard part is not God saving unlikely people. God does that when he just goes, boom, I'm here. The hard part is us believing God saves unlikely people. And you see that in this passage, don't you? So God goes to Ananias, right? God goes to Ananias. Ananias, here I am, Lord. Go to the street called Straight. When you get there, there's going to be this house. And I want you to go into this house. And when you get to that house, you're going to find this man named Saul. And Ananias says, I've heard about that guy. He, he's the guy that imprisoned and persecuted and killed our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. He's the guy that, that, that came here, that came here in order to arrest and to drag us away to prison. And God's like, yeah, go. It's amazing God doesn't tell him right away. God tells him later in the conversation, but God doesn't tell him in that immediate sentence that Paul's even been converted. He says, go. And then I was like, okay, well, I mean, think about this. Think of that most unlikely person, that most unlikely convert that you have in your mind, and you just, you, you hear from God, all right, I'm supposed to go to this street? I'm supposed to go to this house that I've never met anybody in before? I'm supposed to knock on their door? As a, open up when they say, why are you here? I say, well, I'm a Christian, and God told me to come here to to go see what's happening with this guy Saul that came here to kill and drag me away and arrest me? And God said, yes, that's my plan. You go. Sometimes we, as Christians, are called to go to unlikely people. Ananias needs convincing. Ananias says, are you sure, God, because I'm going to be the one putting myself on the line to go to somebody like that? There's a story of um, Chuck Colson. I don't know how many of you guys have ever heard of Chuck Colson. Only the older people know of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was in Nick Nixon's cabinet. Chuck Colson was called Nixon's hatchet man. It is said of Chuck Colson in his biography that someone said of him, he's the kind of guy who would run over his grandmother if necessary to get the job done. He was universally regarded as one of the most unscrupulous people in politics, and he was connected to that great scandal, Watergate. And during that time of that scandal, Chuck Colson came to know Christ. During that time where all was stripped away, during the time where he was confronted by the consequences of his own sin. Now, that doesn't always happen. A lot of us get in trouble. Right? A lot of us get in trouble and have to face the consequences of our sin and of our actions and our illegalities in this case. A lot of us will come into the consequences and just say, I'm sorry I was caught. He faced the consequences of his sin and repented through, because he had seen and experienced the risen Christ. And he speaks about it. We have this book in our library as well, in his, in his book uh, called, called Born Again. What happened, though, is he saw, found a chaplain named uh, Doug Cole who led him to the Lord. He was the, the chair of the National Prayer Breakfast. And he was a person who worked with politicians, much like uh, Rob Montgomery does down uh, at Parliament Hill, one of our missionaries we support. So we met a guy like Rob Montgomery, and, 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 and this guy, Bob Cole, wanted to, or Doug Cole, wanted to um, connect Chuck Colson to other Christians in government so that he could, you know, get a community and be discipled. And he says this story, he tells about this story, uh, Doug Cole recounted, he said, I called, I called Senator Hughes. He, so he calls another Democrat in his party. I called Senator Hughes, who is a well-known Christian, outspoken Christian. 
He says, I called Senator Hughes and I said, Senator, I have a friend who is in tremendous need and needs a friend. I was wondering if you could meet with him and maybe help him along with the Lord. When Hughes learned this friend was Colson, he began uttering a stream of curses and hung up. An hour later, the phone rang. The senator was on the other end. He said, I'm sorry, I know that's not what Jesus would want me to do. If you forgive me, I'll meet with him. But it has to be after 11 o'clock at night, and it has to be outside of the city. <laughs> at this stage of his Christian life, Colson had never played loud and had not finessed the fine art of Christian testimonials. Hughes was understandably skeptical. He asked Colson to tell him about his newfound faith. In halting gestures, Nixon's one-time hatchet man made his confession. After 20 minutes, Co said, After 20 minutes, Co said, Hughes got up, walked across the room, and embraced Colson. We are brothers for life. Sometimes we need to go to those unlikely people, and then sometimes we need to gather unlikely people. Look at the first words Ananias says to Saul. This is beautiful, and it's, it's reflected in what we just read. Ananias goes to find Saul. He goes in obedience to God. He goes taking that risk. He goes, verse 17, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. I'm just going to stop there. His first words to this unlikely convert was to go to lay hands on him, and call him brother. Brother Saul. God uses Ananias to gather Saul into the brotherhood. You, you, you go on and read. He prays for them. He baptizes him. And he eats with him now in Christian fellowship. See, church, we have to believe that God saves unlikely people. And sometimes God will call us to go to unlikely people. And sometimes God will call us to gather and be that first uh, that first act of fellowship to that unlikely convert. And it can be a hard ministry to go to the unlikely converts and be the first, the first people who welcome them in. And sometimes those unlikely converts aren't ready to yet come in to be part of the Christian community. In fact, the Apostle Paul, after this moment in Samaria, he goes and, he goes and preaches Jesus, but he has to go and recalibrate his entire world at this point. And what happens is not talked about in the book of Acts, but it's talked about in the book of Galatians. The Apostle Paul actually takes three years and just goes out to the wilderness to recalibrate. Paul says in the book of Galatians, I went out, I didn't consult with any man, but I went out into the wilderness of Arabia. And he spends three years recalibrating his entire world. It, it, he speaks in 1 Corinthians that those are, that's probably where he was actually meeting with Christ. But he was probably scouring the scripture and trying to make sense of what has just happened, because everything he based his life on previous has now been confronted by Christ, and now he sees nothing new in the same way again. And can you imagine Ananias? This is a hard ministry. It's a hard ministry to be on that front lines of welcome, but then seeing the person who you're welcoming, the person who you're seeing, okay, now Christ has changed them, Christ has changed their life, and then they wander off for a while, for three years. Because he wasn't ready to, to be welcomed fully in. But Ananias was called to go and to gather him. Rosaria Butterfield talks about in her book, like when she, after that train wreck of conversion that she experienced, she wasn't ready to start going to church right away. I mean, she was actually still living with her lesbian partner when she came to Christ. 
And she had to figure out what, what does this even mean for that relationship? What does this even mean? And, and she was worried if she goes to Christ, then that she's, she's not going to be ready to, to fit. And so what that pastor did, the pastor who led her to Christ, said, all right, I will go and gather with you. And he went and he ate with her week after week. He went and he met her partner week after week. He went and he helped, he helped her and he gave her encouragement to explain to the people in her life, to her, to her bosses at her workplace, about what now this means, this new life in Christ means. And that pastor was patient with her. And the pastor was ready to gather her. And when the appropriate time came, she, the pastor then brought her to his church, and she was welcomed there. And, and that brings us to the third point. Sometimes God calls us to go to the unlikely converts. Sometimes God calls us to gather the unlikely converts. And sometimes God calls us to defend, to defend the unlikely converts. And that's what we see uh, happening. With, when, when Paul comes back from the wilderness, we see he goes up to Jerusalem, verse 26. When he'd come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. <laughs> and listen to this. They all were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Right? Nobody believes this. But Barnabas, Barnabas, remember what Barnabas' nickname was? The son of encouragement, right? The apostle said, you're, you're, an, you're so much encouragement, we're going to call you son of encouragement. Barnabas took him and brought him right up to the apostles and declared to them how on the road Paul had seen, or Saul had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus and so from that moment on, Saul goes in and out among them at Jerusalem. And so what Paul, Saul, at that time in his life, he needed not only someone to go out to him and to believe that God could actually do this work in his life, he not only needed somebody like Ananias to go and welcome him and to gather him, but he actually needed someone to, to step up for him and to defend him. And so when he's ready to join the church, when he's ready to join the community, Barnabas brings him right up to the apostles and says, I will vouch for what God has done in this man's life. And we see here in this chapter, chapter 9, we see the apostle Paul, the hater of God, the terrorist, the radical terrorist fighting against God, God doing an amazing work to save the unlikeliest of sinners. And church, like I said, that's the only message I have for you today. Is do you truly believe, do you truly believe that God could save your friend, your family member, the one in your life you've given up on, the one in your life that you've already said, there's no way God, there's no way they would ever come to an understanding or to an acceptance of God's grace. I would pray that you would think of that person, that you would pray for that person, that you would not give up praying for that person. That you would see that there's, there, as long as there is breath in their mouth, and as long as there is a God above them, and as long as the Spirit is powerful, there is a chance that that person may quit fighting against the goads and that God would reveal himself to him. It's, always, it's often those people, those unlikely converts, that, that go on to be great tools in God's hands. At, at Paul's conversion, God tells Ananias what, what he's going to do through Paul. He says, this person is going to be my chosen instrument to the Gentiles. God has a plan for Paul before Paul's saved. It's often those people that are the unlikely converts that, 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 that God will use as great evangelists, as great testimonies of, of God's grace and God's power. And so I'd end here today to just pray for you and to pray for us. Two things. Number one, if you're here today and you do not know God and you're still fighting against the goads, stop and surrender. 
Stop and surrender. Stop fighting. And if you're here today and you already are a Christian, I pray that God might encourage you and encourage me to not give up on our friends who are fighting against the goats. That God can is mighty to save. I'll call up the worship team and let's pray. Lord, there are so many times where we get so discouraged and we do not see you moving. We, we, we forget about your work. We forget about your work, of God, your work in our own lives. We forget about the power when you revealed yourself to us. We forget about how powerfully we saw you at first. We forget about that time where you took our blindness and gave us sight. We forget about that time where we were dead and you brought us to life. And we tend to think, God, that maybe we've done something, that maybe, that maybe we did something in order to earn this salvation, but we did not, God. And I pray, God, that you give us humility to realize the miracle that our salvation was, the miracle that it was that you revealed yourself to us, not just in an intellectual way, but in a powerful way that spoke and touched our soul and made us into those, those, those beautiful car wrecks. And Lord, I pray uh, for anyone in here who doesn't know you, God, I pray that, that they would stop fighting. They'd, stay, they'd stop kicking against the goads. They'd stop struggling against you. They would lay down their defenses, God, and that they would surrender their hearts to you, the Lord of the universe. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would reveal yourself to people here within the sound of my voice. It may not be right now. It may be this evening while they're trying to get to sleep. It may be tomorrow while they're doing a school project and, and they're confronted by a truth of the gospel and something they're studying. It might be through a neighbor or a family member reaching out to them. God, I pray that they would stop kicking against the goads and they surrender their heart to you. And Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would be praying for the unlikely converts. God, I pray that you give us faith to actually believe that you can seek and to save the lost. As Paul said, the statement is true. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. God, I pray that you'd help us to believe that this week. I pray right now that you give one person to each one of us to pray for this week, to pray in faith that you are the God who saves. Lord, I, I pray that we as a church would be able to welcome in some of these unlikely converts that we're praying for right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.